Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. As predicted four months, Russia has launched its invasion of the entirety of Ukraine with President Biden marshalling allies worldwide to sanction Moscow's banking system, leadership class and their families and access to technologies. Uh, This done in dollars, euros, pounds or the yen. The European Union is moving to sever all Russian ties to the global financial system. The moves effectively hamstring trillions of dollars in Russian assets worldwide. And more actions are in the works, including targeting Russia's state banks, more oligarchs and senior officials, Putin himself and other measures. Biden has also warned Putin against launching offensive cyber operations against the United States as the president was presented with retaliatory American and allied measures that are labeled as being without precedent. Two days after ordering the invasion, Vladimir Putin is calling on negotiations to demilitarize Ukraine at a time when rage against Russia is at an all-time high in the country. Uh, The war has sparked protests across 54 Russian cities, including Moscow, where some 1,700 were detained. And that's before the body bags even started returning home. That said, Russian propaganda efforts appear to be making inroads with the Russian people, turning them against the NATO alliance, as well as uh, reducing the popularity of Ukrainians uh, as a general rule among Russians. Weeks after striking alliance with China, Beijing is muted as the White House continues talks with New Delhi to bring India up in its coalition uh, opposing Moscow. The Pentagon is revising its national security strategy to focus on China, but not exclusively so, and putting the finishing touches on its budget request as the vice chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee, Oklahoma Republican, uh, Jim Inhofe, uh, is about to announce his retirements. Meanwhile, Republicans are working overtime to criticize Biden and build up Vladimir Putin. Joining us today to discuss all this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia Security Pacific Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, uh, who joins us for a second time uh, this week. Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms. Former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend, uh, who puts the T in commitment for joining us today on a, on a very, very busy day for him, who is now with the Center for a New American Security and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, uh, who has many affiliations. Uh, in this town, this nation, and internationally, including at the Center for Strategic uh, and International Studies. Everybody, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall, and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Uh, And check out our Cavus Ships podcast, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime issues each week and tune in to the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space uh, each week. Um, Michael, uh, thanks very much. Both houses are out of session, but there's still a lot of activity. Um, Let's talk about the budget. Um, Aren't we going to end up with more than $800 billion uh, by the time this is all said and done? Um, Sort of, you know, proving my point that almost every single thing Putin is doing is actually not smart. He brought the alliance and partners together. He's going to get economically hammered. We're all going to spend more money. We're going to park that capability on his borders. And oh, by the way, uh, the Ukrainians he claimed to love are committed to killing as many of their Russian oppressors as they can, right? So, oh, and by the way, then we have the involved for retirement, right? Where, where are we and what does all this mean? So right now, uh, there is an appetite on Capitol Hill to spend more money. Uh, the question is, 
uh, uh, how much uh, and uh, on what, right? So, you know, first uh, you have Lindsey Graham, who's the ranking member on the Senate uh, Foreign Operations Subcommittee on Appropriations, pushing for an emergency supplemental uh, request to be done next week, which would help both the Ukrainian people with humanitarian aid, as well as helping uh, the Ukrainian military. Uh, there's Now, the question that remains, uh, can they do that next week or do they wait to try and connect that with the omnibus, which would pass a week later on March 11th? Uh, but another problem that comes up is, is there time, is it too late uh, to, to give more military aid to the Ukrainians? Uh, and Senate, uh, Congressman Adam Smith, who chairs the Armed Services Committee, kind of alluded to that. Uh, and now there's talk on the Hill as to whether there will be a insurgency that we would be funding. So, uh, and, and at the same time, the administration has not formally asked Congress for any funding for Ukraine. So it's, there's a, a lot of chatter, a lot of people wanting to do something. It's just a question of what they're gonna do and when, when they can do it. Uh, on top of that, if there is a package, you know, Senator Menendez, who chairs the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, uh, wants the administration uh, to give temporary protective status to Ukrainian immigrants. Uh, to allow them to stay here in the United States instead of forcing them to go back home to a, to a war-torn country. So, but that being said, I think we're, we're locked in on what we're going to spend on defense, I think, for FY22. That, that ship has sailed, and that uh, on the bus should be done by March 11th. The question is FY23. And uh, it looks like the Biden administration's what, what request is going to come over, and we talked about this before, when adjusted for inflation is still a cut, but Congress is definitely going to add to that. Uh, now it's a question as to how much are they going to add and for what are they going to add? And I think that there is going to be, you know, a push uh, to, you know, to look at, you know, some legacy systems, which I know would come up a lot on this discussion, but this, this conflict shows that we still need troops on the ground, tanks, self-propelled howitzers, you know, uh, things like that, that we're going to need to redeploy to Europe. And that's when, you know, it'd be interesting to see. I think you have a lot of Republicans that support that. You have some that don't uh, and some Democrats that will and will not support that as well. But I, I personally believe that by shoring up NATO and shoring up democracy there also furthers our strategy against China that is wants to spread authoritarian regimes around the world and kill democracies as well. So uh, I think we are going to see, uh, in the, at least in the short run, an increase in defense spending. And, and Inhofe retirement and, and what that means, right? Because this was relatively unanticipated. So the Republicans really do have to scramble in order to be able to fill that seat, correct? Uh, I don't really think it's much of a scramble. I mean, Inhofe's giving them a lot of notice. I mean, we're only we're in the end of February now. Inhofe is going to stay for the rest of the year, so he will not be leaving Congress until the end of December. Uh, so there are really two uh, candidates uh, that will to replace him. Uh, it's Roger Wicker, Senator Wicker from Mississippi. He's next in line. If he wants it, it's his. Um, and you know, I think he would bring a focus uh, on, on shipbuilding. He's been a strong proponent of shipbuilding, obviously, because he has a lot of shipyards in Mississippi. Uh, and then if he chooses that, uh, not to take the, the gavel, then uh, Senator Deb Fisher from Nebraska uh, would be next in line to take it. And her focus has tend to be more on supporting the uh, nuclear triad and nuclear modernization. So it'll be one of those two uh, which will replace Senator Inhofe. And what I was also talking about was the election that's going to happen in Oklahoma, right? I mean, there was some, uh, the way that it was characterized in some of the early reports was that it was going to be a somewhat chaotic primary scene. I mean, do you think that it is going to be chaotic or is going to be pretty much a coronation of another Republican effectively? Oh, no, I think it's going to be uh, chaotic. Uh, new candidates seem to be getting in every five minutes. So it's going to be very, I, I've been texting with some of my friends in the Oklahoma delegation this morning. Uh, there's, there's a lot of people coming out of the woodwork. A former ambassador uh, just uh, came out of the woodwork today. We have former house, we have current house members. Uh, In-house chief of staff is getting in the race. Uh, is, is, there's much more to follow. Um, let's uh, go to 
the issue of how Republicans are responding to this. You and I exchanged some texts uh, and, and you were uh, frustrated by some of the messaging. Uh, and I should point out you ran for Congress as a Republican and consider yourself a Republican or perhaps much more of a classical Republican than we're seeing sometimes in Washington. Dove, I extend that uh, moniker to you as, as, as well, having served in uh, Ronald Reagan's administration. Um, the president has played a central role in bringing allies and partners together, and he's drawing broad praise even from Republican friends that I uh, talk to. But the public message is a little bit of a disjointed jumble of criticisms, right? Trying to portray him as weak, not deploying troops to the country, then on the other hand saying that you know troops should not be in the country, that he's ready to cut defense spending, which is not necessarily true, that he's you know not standing up as hard to Putin while at the very same time arguing that Putin Putin shouldn't be an enemy and that you know, what's so bad about Putin? He's actually a really strong genius. Vladimir Putin is the kindest, bravest, warmest, most wonderful human being I've ever known in my life, right? So, you know, you know, but there's the question of Biden's popularity uh, and Republicans sense victory in November. Inflation is high. Punishing Moscow means raising more prices at home. My big criticism is that's the reason why we've always moved away from sanctions is we haven't wanted to bear any political pain or, or economic pain at the end of this. Where, where, where are we and what does this messaging actually do to the ability of the president to stand up to a tyrant and dictator um, who is precipitating a bigger crisis? And the White House team knows, and that's the reason why Tony Blinken has been saying for so long, the world is watching. We mean Beijing is watching. And if we get this right now, it's a deterrent. Not if everybody is chewing the president's butt when he's actually, you know, appears to be doing a pretty good job. I, I agree. Right. And, I, and it is a jumble. So let's first look at th there have been um, some messaging from national security Republicans, which I think has been you know, positive. I mean, Mike Rogers, who's ranking on armed services, along with Mike McCall, who ranking who's the ranking on foreign affairs and Mike Turner, who's ranking on Intel, you know, sent out a strong message uh, against Putin and uh, in support of, uh, of sanctions and uh, our support of the Ukrainian people. Um, they also sent out a statement. Uh, the next day, also urging um, more support and you know, blaming everything on, on Vladimir Putin. Now, at the same time, uh, there some some in Republican leadership who I won't name have uh, sent out some tweets and some messages that I don't think are helpful to our cause because you're right, the world is watching. And you know, I've been calling uh, you know Biden weak and and feckless. Uh, we're witnessing Joe Biden's foreign policy of war through weakness, and and that to me is astounding because. If anybody's exhibiting weakness right now, it's those Republicans that are out there uh, that are saying that Putin is a smart guy, is Putin's a great guy, and you know, who cares about Ukraine, right? But those are the people that are saying who cares about democracy, you know, who cares about all the things America stands for, and uh, go ahead, let Putin do what he wants to do, and don't really understand what the repercussions are going to be. So to me, that's the, those are the folks that are really exhibiting weakness. And I, I've you know, I've talked to members of Republican leadership, and I've, when I've seen these statements, and I've you know uh, voiced my displeasure, and I think. You know, cases like this is you have nothing good to say. Then don't say anything at all, uh, because again, getting back to your earlier point, that this is this is counterproductive. You know, the world, uh, the, the Democrats rallied around uh, George Bush after the invasion of of Kuwait. Uh, they uh, rallied around his father after the the, the twin towers fell after 9/11. And uh, you know, sometimes we have to put uh, country first before party. I understand that it's not the Republican leadership's job to rally support for Biden. But in that case, it's better to say nothing than to say negative things about his leadership at a time of national crisis. But at um, the same I, time, I, you know, I also thought that that the picture that was put out was a particularly cheap shot. Right. I mean, the president was just walking away from the, the podium after announcing unprecedented sanctions on the Russians that hamstrung something like three trillion dollars of their money as just an opening gambit. Right. So 
I, before I agree the shooting had even started. I, I agree 100. And I, I saw that and I forwarded that to several members of the Republican leadership, voicing my displeasure and my concern on that and then spoke to several of them about it. Um, uh, and, and many agree, by the way, uh, and many are just uh, will either agree or point the finger at you know, other people who are responsible for sending those, those pictures out. Um, but at the same time, you know, there was a letter sent to the president earlier this week, signed by 43 members of Congress, both Democrats and Republicans, to add to his headaches, you know, to remind him of the, uh, the war powers resolution and that uh, Congress uh, is supposed to be in charge of uh, war powers and declaring war and that, that Congress needs to be consulted if we uh, deploy you know, troops to, to Ukraine. And, and it was a really interesting group of folks that signed this letter. I mean, people on the far left, like you know, Pramila Jaipal and uh, uh, Mark Pocan and Ocasio-Cortez and uh, Ilan Omar, and then folks on the right, like Matt Gates and Andy Biggs and, and Paul Gosar signed this letter. So uh, the president's getting it from all ends. Uh, but uh, I think he, for the most part, I think there is a majority of folks in the House and the Senate and Republicans and Democrats who are standing behind the president and standing behind NATO. Um, I, I uh, you know, uh, commend uh, Adam Kinzinger uh, for uh, taking uh, for for the co- for the thoughtful uh, commentary, and he was the first person uh, to assail uh, that um, uh, image that the Republicans sent out. But right, I mean, the enemy of my political enemy is my friend. Uh, ultimately, right, it makes unusual bedfellows. I, for one, believe we should have been putting troops. Uh, into uh, Ukraine or certainly considered it or considered doing it as an alliance because now we're not going to be getting rid of uh, uh, rid of the Russians anytime soon, right? I mean, they're right as we speak. Uh, amphibious operation is going on uh, on the Black Sea near Odessa. Um, you know, the Russian troops are in uh, Kiev. Uh, and as uh, Zelensky has said, right, he is target number one uh, and his family is target uh, number two as a, a major European power. You know, the largest European power just invaded the second largest uh, your European power. Um, let's, um, uh, uh, Jim, I want to bring you in. Thanks very, very much for joining us. I mean, I know how terribly busy you are today. And I wanted to get your sense on where we are, how's um, the administration uh, doing. There are some reports that Ukrainian units have fought well enough to actually change uh, the dynamic and actually uh, show the Russians that uh, there's more opposition. On the other hand, the Russians are using overwhelming force, and there isn't any doubt that they're going to take the entirety of the country. There may be a very bloody uh, counterinsurgency. I mean, we saw whether it was with Afghanistan or Iraq, far smaller, smaller nations. Uh, we had a lot more than 150,000 troops uh, in those countries, and we couldn't quell them. And the Ukrainians are particularly proud of their democracy and their country. And the, and, and the you know finally, after hundreds of years being independent, they're quite passionate about preserving that independence, which is exactly why Putin wants to crush it. Now there's um, a, a discussion, uh, right? The, the Kremlin is putting forward, hey, if you guys just demilitarize, let's have talks. Uh, and we have Recep Tayyip Erdogan, you know, a, a NATO leader known to, you know, sort of undermine the alliance fairly consistently um, is, is saying, well, we got to do something, you know, to address the weakness of the alliance as uh, you know, at the, at the meeting over the weekend. What, what do you make of it? Where are we? Where are we going? Uh, are the sanctions enough? Is the administration on, on the right track? What more do we need to be doing? Uh, yeah, Vlago, uh, thank you so much for for having me. Uh, I, um, you know, a couple of things just that it's, it's amazing to think about in terms of not just the sanctions that you've been mentioning in terms of the finance and economy, which we can talk about, but on the military side, We've seen some deployments to Europe that I thought I would never see. And I will tell you, I have spent decades and decades working on U.S. deployments to Europe uh, for various reasons. And so 
um, we should not uh, downplay uh, the fact that uh, for the first time we've got F-35s going to Europe. Uh, we've got Apaches that have now been sent also to Poland and to the Baltics and Apaches, you know, they go after tanks. That's what they do. Uh, and so they have been now deployed. Uh, and also we have got uh, something that the Balts have been begging for uh, for a long time, which is U.S. boots on the ground in the Baltics. Uh, and now uh, the 173rd, I think, has sent, uh, sent folks into the Baltics. So Putin is waking up this morning to seeing more U.S. as well as alliance, but more U.S. troops closer to him than he wants. Uh, and, and, uh, and I think this is just the tip of the iceberg. As you know, we've been flying B-52s over Europe and into the UK. That is its own signal, as you know. Uh, and so I think today, you know, the NATO is having this emergency summit right now. My guess is they're going to either approve today or shortly um, uh, deploying the, v the VJTF, the very uh, high readiness joint task force, which is part of the NATO response force. I can see these NATO forces being deployed maybe to Romania, uh, you know, maybe to Poland or the Balts. Uh, and so I think just in terms of the military aspect of the sanctions, uh, we're seeing some things that symbolize um, a uptick uh, in, in the type of equipment that we're sending in there. We, we announced another armor brigade combat team going back in. Uh, so, um, so that's significant. And I think there's more to come. Uh, and that that is not a good uh, a good look for Putin. <laughs> it wasn't like this two months ago, and now look what he's got to face. Uh, secondly, I think this morning um, we're seeing a, um, a a much greater willingness among uh, Ukraine civilians or reservists uh, to actually take on a an insurgency role, if you will. Um, and that's a loaded term, uh, but what I'm really mean by this is that um, this is going to be more painful for uh, the Russians uh, than they expected. I think there was some expectation that with Ukraine, um, the Russians would really roll over them. I, I think I think at the end of the day, this 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 handing out machine guns as they are today to civilians will not repel the Russians. I think, like you said, I think at the end of the day, in terms of of um, of you know a military on military uh, uh, clash here, I think the Russians are going to eventually prevail. But I don't think it's as easy as they thought it was going to be. I think once they achieve uh, military dominance, it's going to be painful for them for months to come uh, in ways that will cause the uh, Russians to have a brutal suppression of that. So even after a puppet government is put into Kyiv, even after the last organized Ukrainian resist, um, uh, uh, Ukrainian um, opposition has disappeared from the battlefield, uh, you're going to have um, uh, terrorist incidents, if you will, not terrorist, wrong term. You're gonna see these insurgents uh, that will be assassinating and bombing and, uh, uh, and, and causing a lot of problems for a, a Putin who might be trying to, at least for the medium term, occupy Ukraine until he determines what he's gonna do with it. It's not gonna be something that's gonna be a cakewalk for him. And the more brutality that we see in the months to come in suppressing this, uh, the more outraged and the more pressure there's going to be in the West to do something um, in the more than just sanctions. 
What that looks like, I don't know. It is dangerous to run um, a resupply for insurgents out of Poland or any place like that, because they risk Russian retaliation on Poland, which of course is a NATO ally, and that brings in Article 5. But, but um, the whole insurgency debate aside, which is a complex one, it's just to, to make the point that this is going to be a long-term problem for Putin. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and you're going to have on top of that the long-term problem of these sanctions really biting into him. And what we will probably see as a result is uh, retaliation by Putin. Uh, I don't think he's going to sit still two months, ago, uh, two months from now under the pain from uh, his financial sector collapsing in some ways, uh, as well as the pain of seeing his people killed uh, in Ukraine. He will want to retaliate in some way, and we might very well see that in the form of, of cyber attacks or something along those lines, uh, using gas as a weapon. Um, if, if, if he doesn't do that before, uh, we're gonna see that in a couple of months as a part of retaliation too. So the bottom line here is that the, the, the is that this is going to be a, a long term thing. It's going to go through phases. You got the kinetic phase that we're in the middle of now, that will end at some point, and we'll see instead of an insurgency uh, of some type. Uh, we're going to see the pain that that will that will produce. We're going to see ripple effects into Europe and into the United States of of impact from the uh, sanctions. So we're gonna have to stay strong and unified. We can't wobble as, the, as it gets hard for all of us um, because we don't have any option here. We can't sit back and, uh, uh, and, 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 and uh, let Putin uh, have, uh, have a uh, get out of jail free card here. Uh, we're gonna have to, to uh, make this as painful for, for as long as we can uh, and deal with whatever he's gonna dish out back at us. We have no choice. And we also have no choice about putting U.S. forces, NATO forces, back on a higher readiness and more capable scale than we have seen over the past couple of decades. And I think the fear that is now in the minds of a lot of Europeans based on what they're seeing in Ukraine will give us a much better chance than we've had in a long time of getting the Europeans to do more in terms of defense spending and carrying more of the load. It's nothing like fear to to make a, an alliance more unified and more focused on capabilities. And if this isn't, doesn't inspire fear in the Europeans, I don't know what will. Uh, so I think, we, I think the summit today and the summit in June in Madrid is gonna have to really take advantage of this and push allies like hell to do more. Uh, and uh, and I, think, I think we've got a chance of making that uh, successful. But this is a long haul. We have to buckle into this and we have to know that in the coming weeks, we're gonna see scenes coming out of Ukraine, even after this kinetic phase is, is over, we're gonna see, see some pretty brutal photos um, and there will be pressure in the West on all of us to do more and we have to be ready to do that. Appreciate all of that. But I mean, you know, on the other hand, the question is, you know, what does this do for Ukraine? And we didn't stop uh, the Russians uh, from doing this. And, and my concern, you know, people take deterrence for granted. And if you're too soft for too long, your adversaries take your measure and they go, he has uh, or she or they lack capability and will. Uh, Putin is an enemy. Putin has been an enemy. Putin has clearly made that the case. It, it is not yet fully dawning on us. Um, we um, are now taking it to the Russian people and going to stick it to the Russian people. I think we have to do it comprehensively. No, you can't travel to the West. It's, you know, take, take it up with Putin. You can't visit your houses. This is not just oligarchs. It goes to students. It goes to average people. No, you can't have a visa to go to Cyprus. 
uh, to vacation. Uh, and we'll make it hard to fly on any Western airplane. If you want to go to Thailand or do tourism in Japan, go right. to China. Um, right. uh, Dove, you know, and, and again, my, my thing was if we had put uh, greater weapons, Dove was uh, somebody who was talking about arming Ukrainians at a higher rate, Ukrainians at a higher rate. Uh, I agree with you. We have to do that. We have an obligation to support the Zelensky government uh, at this point. My, my point was, well, why not put troops on the ground? If we had put 50,000 NATO troops there, the Russians wouldn't have done this and we would not have had this problem, right? So, but, you know, Dove, I want to bring you into the conversation. I, I should have pointed out you served um, uh, not just in the Reagan administration, but in the George uh, W. Bush administration as well. And, you and you've advised, by the way, in a nonpartisan manner, um, uh, uh, Democratic and Republican administrations. How's the president doing? Where are we? And what are the next uh, steps of this as far as you're concerned? Um, because, you know, I, I agree with with uh, Jim, this is going to get worse and it's going to get brutal. But then there's a political dimension to this. And, you know, I think Americans should be standing strong. And part of the price we're going to pay is at the gas pump, uh, thankfully. But that's in part because we did not want body bags coming. Right. So it's either blood or treasure. Um, you know, what, what's your sense on where we are and where we're going and how this plays out, especially playing out in an election year? And oh, by the way, what does that mean uh, for the budget um, and, and strategy going forward? Well, a couple of things. First, uh, you know, you talked about blood and treasure. Um, and I wrote a piece comparing uh, what Biden did, which was to take any kind of military activity off the table to what George W. Bush did when Georgia was invaded and the Russians were marching on to Tbilisi, he announces a humanitarian airlift, but it's airlift and sea lift, but it's airlifted by C-17s and other military aircraft and by Navy ships. And lo and behold, within the first couple of days when uh, those military aircraft landed and stayed in Tbilisi, Condi Rice, the Secretary of State, is over there, and there's a ceasefire that has held ever since then. Biden didn't do that. But actually, there's a better example. Biden has said over and over again, as has his administration, that he wants to be like FDR. Well, in 1940, when the majority of Americans were isolationists, didn't want to go to war, FDR is supplying the British we are not at war with the Nazis. We actually have our embassy still in Berlin and our ships with our sailors are being sunk. That's blood. And he kept on doing that. And so it ultimately comes down to whether you want to pay another dollar at the pump or whether you want to stand for something. And Putin, I think, rightful, rightly concluded that, yes, there are going to be sanctions, but, you know, he's got this backdoor deal with China um, and uh the West isn't going to hold. And, and in fact, even with the second round of sanctions, our friends in Rome, the Italians have said, well, we want an exemption for selling luxury goods to Russia. Who do you think buys Italian luxury goods? It isn't Ivan or Ivana on the street. It's all those oligarchs that we're putting sanctions on. So Putin has rightly calculated that Biden may have been able to hold NATO together for the first round, that it wouldn't hold. And of course, there are no sanctions on oil and gas. Uh, the banking sanctions uh, may or may not actually come to place because come into place because, uh, again, the Europeans are, are really pushing back on that. 
uh, yes, we'll sanction a few banks, but the Russians will still be in the overall system. So uh, it's a real problem. And uh, I think that Jim is right. Uh, if uh, we start supplying uh, the, the Ukrainian, uh, any kind of Ukrainian resistance out of Poland, that puts Poland in a very difficult situation. Um, and so uh, all in all, I would give Biden at this point a B uh, for holding NATO together. Let's see what he does at these summits. And let's see if NATO commits to do more. And then to your budget, but I wouldn't give him anything more than that because he ruled out any kind of military response. Whether the Ukrainians will continue to fight uh, depends very much on what Putin does next. If I were Putin, I would essentially say, look, I want that autonomy for the East. Those are my people. Uh, I don't want to have a guerrilla war like I had in Chechnya with the Westerners. Uh, so let's sit down and talk. And guess what? That's exactly what the Russians are holding out for. They want to talk about a new uh, Minsk agreement, which I suspect will be exactly what I just laid out, more or less. Um, for, the, for, for Biden, if he wants to send a real message to Russia and to China, he better plus up that defense budget. $800 billion is what's called 050, as I understand it, which is not just the Department of Defense budget. And if you and if you actually calculate what that means, it means no real growth. There has to be real growth. There has to be enough real growth so that the army is, is fully plussed up to fight a war in Europe. The Navy and the Air Force in particular and the Marines are fully plussed up to fight a war in, in Asia. Yes, there's going to be some waste. Let me tell you, it ain't easy to find all the waste in $700 billion budgets. And don't tell me that Exxon doesn't have any waste or that Amazon doesn't have any waste. Uh, they all do. There's things that can be done. I hope that new commission on PPBE will do a lot about that. But the fact of the matter is that if Putin is sitting there and she is sitting there and they see that there is no real growth in the defense budget when Putin has just tried to swallow up almost successfully all of Ukraine, they're gonna conclude that Biden talks, but he doesn't walk. I agree um, completely with Dove, absolutely right. Um, I, I want to uh, bring uh, Patrick into this. He's been uh, very patient. And, uh, you, know, what, or, you know, months ago, uh, we were talking as the president's agenda was winding down. And, and I mentioned at the time uh, in the conversation that actually, yes, you know, the president that uh, Biden ought to be emulating at this point, given his domestic agenda is grinding down after Michael's uh, very cheerful weekly updates on Build Back Better and to actually become a national security president. And in that pivot, would actually be able to get a lot of bipartisan support or, or maybe not, right? I mean, given in the new political environment we're in, maybe he doesn't get that bipartisan uh, support uh, as much. Although, Dove, I will point out, um, you know, um, among the many reasons folks had a lot of respect for you when you were comptroller was making the case that it's actually not only about spending more money, we have to figure out what works and what doesn't work. So I'm very, very reluctant about the legacy world. It's more about what's relevant and not relevant and I would argue that in, in the kind of capabilities that are being fielded, you can do that. Armor has a chance against a country like Ukraine if you can get air superiority. It's much, much more problematic if you're going up against a peer adversary that's going to use swarming smaller capabilities, the likes of which we saw, uh, for example, in the Armenia-Azerbaijan uh, war. Uh, where you have a lot of autonomous systems and actually tanks become a vulnerability uh, and, and potentially a, a liability. Anyway, uh, Patrick, let me bring you wait, in. Wait a minute, uh, don't, don't run off with that. Uh, you're, you're not wrong. 
we there is clearly there's an over reliance on legacy capabilities. On the other hand, you're not going to eliminate them. You've got to sustain them. You've got to operate them, and we're not spending enough money on training. Okay, so that's number one. That already argues for a plus up of the budget. Plusing up the budget doesn't mean buying more tanks. Also, we are not spending enough on the research and development programs that actually could come into play sooner than they have. So I would argue, plus the budget up, sure, do it right. But if you don't plus it up, you don't have a chance to do it right. Um, I uh, Look, I, I think uh, this is where we get Pennywise, not foolish, pound stupid. At a moment like this, you jack it up, you send a signal, accelerate the programs, back Frank Kendall, back CQ Brown, do whatever it takes to wake the Navy up. And, and, uh, and the Army's already working at trying to address its deficiencies organizationally, culturally, operationally, as each of the services are trying to do. I mean, the Air Force, uh, the Marines, and, the, um, uh, and uh, the Army in particular. And that is far cheaper than having to fight a war. So I think that that's the message that we keep forgetting on a regular basis when people say, oh, my God, what's happening in Europe? How did this happen? How did it come to this? People forget history. And the, the bottom line is that's why you have to always show will. That's why you always have to be tough. And that's why you should spend money on this crap so that nobody takes that risk and makes the miscalculation because this is a massive miscalculation. Every autocrat does it. The problem is for 20, 30 years, we've been saying he's not an enemy and the Russian people are not our enemy. And ultimately, the, it's actually better to say, yes, he's an enemy. He's not a competitor. Treat him as such. During the Cold War, the Soviet Union was committed to the destruction of the West. We were committed to the destruction of the Soviet Union and consistently did things to make their lives impossible. We are trying to do business as usual and we'll sell you luxury goods and buy you oil, but we're just going to have stern words for you. And that doesn't matter to Vladimir Putin. Um, I, would, I, would, I would argue that another thing we have to spend money on in order to achieve those goals is increasing end strength. Remember, I mean, the size of the military active duty at the end of the Cold War was 2.1 million active duty. Now we're down to about 1.4, which is a reduction of 700,000 people. You know, and to put that in context, you know, the, the entire armed forces of Great Britain is about 350,000. The entire armed forces of France is about 350,000. You know, to not only be a deterrent force in Europe, but also be a deterrent force uh, against China, we need a, a, lar a larger military force. I, and that's, I am, and that's I, expensive. I, I, I'm not, listen, quantity has a quality all its own. You cannot reduce this. Wartime losses are dramatic. As Dove saw when he was sitting as comptroller in the building, right. you have optimistic assumptions, and then all of a sudden you start losing equipment at a much higher rate than you anticipated. And that was not a kinetic high-intensity operation. We're going to lose bombers. We're going to lose aircraft carriers. And I don't think anybody has fully come to grips with how bloody and how much will be lost. Let me let me just bring uh, Patrick in. He was very uh, patient. Uh, and Patrick, you were kind enough to join us yesterday for a deeper dive uh, in terms of uh, the relationship between the Chinese uh, and the Russians. Give, give us a sense on the, the role, you know, A, where the Chinese are on this for those who might have missed the program yesterday. Uh, but I commend everybody to tune in for it. Uh, and our producer, Chris Cervello, joined us for sort of a messaging discussion. Sort of where, where are the Chinese? What, and, and do the Chinese become a broker in this, right? I mean, do the Chinese try to play peacemaker? And then I want to ask a broader financial question um, where the Chinese actually might say nothing but could be extremely advantageous to the Russians in circumventing sanctions that we 
maintain are going to be very tough because China has you has already used access to its market and a desire even by our closest allies to circumvent our sanctions to actually build quite a nice backdoor. But, but let's let's take the first question first and how China is responding or not and how Asia is actually playing a very key role in the administration's response in this case, which I think is quite admirable, actually. Well, Vago, even just thinking about the past month, uh, China helped pave the way for this crisis by having that uh, Putin-Xi statement on the uh, outskirts of the Beijing summit um, that called for a no limits entente with Russia. They're now backpedaling a bit now that uh, Putin has invaded Ukraine, but they're still exploiting the crisis. They want it both ways. Um, they're not willing to go to the UN Security Council and join all the other members other than Russia uh, in condemning Russia. Uh, so they're still giving them an out. Uh, they're doing they're giving them an out economically as well. Um, but they want credit for Xi having a telephone conversation with Putin saying you should negotiate an end to this. And we understand your legitimate security concerns. While the Ministry of Foreign Affairs continues to use its various propaganda lines, um, deflecting blame. Uh, they talked about NATO's dead of blood, referring to the 1999 attack uh, on the uh, Chinese embassy in Belgrade. Um, that was a while ago, guys. Um, the U.S. Hey, Cold how War about this? How about not helping our enemy? <laughs> a bomb might not accidentally hit the office that was helping our enemy. Uh, of but course. Just saying. It and, and the Chinese don't want to go back to telling the truth about what really happened there. And it's it's a murky it's a murky record. But the point is, uh, there was blame uh, to go around. Um, and now they're blaming the U.S. They're using the fear of American abandonment of Taiwan. Um, and that's why Tsai Ing-wen, the president of Taiwan, is calling about, look, they're stepping up cognitive warfare, this psychological warfare. They're not just flying more planes around Taiwan, which they do all the time these days. Um, but their uh, front page of the Global Times, for instance, where you can find more criticism of America than you can of any mention about Russia in Ukraine, by the way. And they have a, this sinister looking artwork where Uncle Sam is smiling, thinking about leaving Taiwan abandoned as a pawn on the chessboard. Um, and that's sort of you know, very much clear propaganda, psychological warfare that China's playing. So does China want to manage down this crisis? Yes, they do. They want it both ways. They want to minimize the economic and political fallout that they have to suffer because of Russia's aggression, but they don't want to take on their strategic partner and they don't want to punish Russia when it's actually undermining the U.S. rules-based system, because that's a common interest that Xi Jinping has. What's sort of a broader uh, regional question, and I want to bring this uh, back uh, to uh, uh, others in the conversation as well. But uh, talk to us about our allies and partners and how they're viewing, right, how, how China's response to this is shaping their own considerations, because it is really interesting how many of our Asia-Pacific partners have actually come along with this. Obviously, the president said that we're still discussing, um, you know, with India, where India goes, because India has had a very deep and long relationship with the Russians, uh, one that it has not wanted to fully turn its back on, especially a Hindu nationalist like Narendra Modi, uh, who is much more in an older mindset and mind frame when it comes to the Russians. Uh, and yet, you know, India is very concerned about China. How, how are our partners looking at this? Because Japan joined us, Taiwan joined us, South Korea has joined us, Australia, you know what I mean? Many countries in the region are putting their voice in a way that maybe, you know, and I think we have a tendency also of forgetting Russia is a Pacific power who is flexing its regional muscle uh, as well, which makes it particularly problematic, right? So how do we 
how do we need to think about this dimension and how are actually nations in Asia acting in this, given that they're also now having perhaps an increasing eye on on the Russians and what they may do off the Kuriles or anywhere else, right? I mean, the, the, the Russians have a whole series of territorial disputes that they too can fan. Well, all Asian countries are worried about this possible contagion leading to a conflict in Asia, uh, but they worry about it for different reasons. Clearly, Prime Minister uh, Kishida of Japan uh, is taking a leading role in making sure that Japan, which has been relatively uh, weak when it comes to sanctions on Russia, has been a stalwart ally on this issue. And he's called out the fact that, look, if we tolerate the use of force to change the status quo in Europe, we're basically giving a green light for that to happen in Asia. Um, And that's an important message. And that's one that's been repeated in Canberra and Australia. Um, And I mentioned, you know, Peter Jennings, the the, top defense uh, sort of analyst who called for um, understanding that America has no way out on this crisis, the way they were able to draw out of uh, Afghanistan and argue that that was actually to uh, rebalance to Asia. Um, They can't walk away from a European crisis with Putin, ceding Central Europe to Putin in effect by the use of force, uh, and expect them to still have credibility in Asia. Korea has rallied around uh, the United States here. Again, a good sign. Interestingly, an aside, this won't be talked about for weeks, I'm sure, but you now have both political parties in South Korea calling for the future of Korean energy to be based on nuclear power. That, that, that's a, a serious change, and that's an interesting question about future uh, energy and security policy. Um, India has been sitting on the fence, but you know, President Biden got to Prime Minister Modi, uh, and, and now Prime Minister Modi is at least pushing for uh, an end to violence, and hopefully he'll sign on to a strong quad statement. The ASEAN 10 Southeast Asian countries are um, sort of st- still more taking a back seat. They're worried about the fallout economically of inflation, uh, of higher energy prices. And yet you're going to see more hedging in the way that, say, Indo- Indonesia, which recently jettisoned a Russian SU-35 buy to buy French jets. I, you're going to see a lot more of that and much less Russian influence and much more alignment with, frankly, the U.S., Japan, uh, with Australia, with India, uh, the Quad countries uh, over time. And China's trying to, to stop that kind of counter-China alliance, in effect, that they do see possibly becoming an unintended consequence out of this. Meanwhile, Taiwan, while it's under psychological duress, you still have, and let's salute our troops out there, you know, you've got the Lincoln Carrier Strike Group, the America Amphibious Ready Group, uh, they're right out there in the Philippine Sea, the Reagan Carrier Strike Group uh, based out of Japan, um, just as you have the Truman Carrier Strike Group in the Mediterranean right now. You know, we have, we have forces uh, on the front lines right now making sure that we do deter other types of aggression. And that's very important, even while everybody you know, earlier said we have to show uh, strength and increase defense. I think we can also increase security assistance to Taiwan, to other countries, right. uh, and not just our own defenses. Uh, I, I think we need a relentless strategy, an integrated strategy that uses information, weakens these totalitarian uh, dictators whose own people do not like what they're doing. I know Chinese who do not like what she is doing, uh, given that they had actually two decades of relative freedom and they enjoyed it. And now they're finding in each and every single case that that is curtailed. We have to go into a bit of a lightning round uh, and I'm going to ask a a sanctions uh, question. Um, We have now put forward and obviously the devil is in the details and we have a tendency of punching giant holes in our own sanctions, right? I mean, I think each of these Russian banks have thousands of subsidiaries. You have to 
uh, apply sanctions to each of those subsidiaries. And historically, we have dug outs, right? Um, you know, Boeing wants it out. GE wants it out. I'm not criticizing anybody, right? But they're big companies and they rely on trade. Russia's been a market. Uh, well, you know, we don't want to interfere with that. We don't want to interfere with luxury goods. Well, you know, Louis Vuitton gets involved in this and the French ask for a set aside. Brits want to make sure the Russian oligarch money, which counts for a rather sizable chunk of uh, money in the UK, right? Including soccer team ownerships, right? Well, well, we can't do anything there. Um, the concern was at what point does the dollar-based system come under pressure and actually start to fracture? And there is a concern that the chips uh, clearinghouse that's in Hong Kong that HSBC helped set up, um, that now does $1.8 trillion, right, in clearances, is actually the back door that a lot of people are using to sort of circumvent whenever we put sanctions on anybody, including used by our uh, closest allies and partners. And then the Chinese in at the Beijing Olympics uh, debuted the, the di digital renminbi. And what's that, you know, what, the, the minute that China forces any company, foreign company doing business in China to adopt that as the payment system, that's going to spread like wildfire overnight and, and constitute sort of another problem. Are we, you know, at, at a time when we're kind of riding high in the saddle and seeing like, hey, you know, watch what we can do and we'll partner with the pound and the, the, the euro and the yen to do this. Is there a gigantic backdoor that's sitting here that's actually going to undermine all of this and be something that the Russians go, eh? Now, I, I don't underestimate, by the way, we, we have frozen effectively their assets, right? Trillions of dollars of it. So there is an impact from that going forward. Uh, you know, so I'm not minimizing that. Again, devil's in the details. But is, is this, Patrick, maybe if you want to start us off, right? This, what does this mean? Uh, and, and should we actually be a little bit more worried? Uh, and, and Jim uh, and, and Dove want to get your sense on this. And then we can go a lightning round to two other questions before we wrap up. Go ahead. Well, it means a couple of things. One, that we know that sanctions are a longer term uh, game and that they will degrade Russia's military and economy over time. They were never going to cripple them or change Putin's thinking in the short term. But it does a couple of things. One, it rallies the world and gets them on a, a common diplomatic framework to say, let's stand up to aggression. So now we can do other things, including providing uh, arms to an insurgency, perhaps that's growing out of in Ukraine to other allies in NATO and NATO territory, to Taiwan, to other partners who may be in, in threat. But we're also sending a signal to Beijing that while they can bail out Russia right now, they're going to pay a huge economic price for this too. And that will make them cautious. And it will also uh, you know, help put together a rules-based system again uh, that we're, we're going to have to rebuild because it's, it's, it's been broken by this shattered peace in Europe by Putin. Um, Dove, is there a... Um... Is, is this a concern that you share or is this an overwrought concern from, from your standpoint, right? Do we have enough mechanisms? Uh, and Jim, I want to get your sense on this and, and, and Michael, if you want to weigh in as well, right? Um, and hopefully we're going to have a good guest on, on this issue next week uh, to get kind of de deeper into the mechanics of it, right? Because I know all of you guys are not exactly financial sanctions experts, uh, but certainly throughout your careers have played enough a role in crafting them that I was curious to get your sense. Go ahead, Dove. Well, I actually wrote a study of sanctions some years ago. Uh, and what you find with sanctions is that they rarely work. The two biggest successes were South Africa and Rhodesia. Um, but we've had sanctions against God knows how many countries that people don't even know about. 
And they haven't really made much of a difference. And of course, people talk, point to Cuba. We've had them in sanctions since 1962, but they still keep on going. So I think we need to be finding other ways than just sanctions. Now, financial sanctions tend to be more effective than trade sanctions. But as you said, there are back doors. By the way, Russian reserves are, they hit a record level in December of 21. They've dropped slightly, but not very much. Uh, and they're uh, literally uh, more than 150 times greater than they were in December of 92, just after the, you know, the Soviet Union collapsed. So Putin's sitting on a ton of money. He's got a backdoor uh, with China. Uh, and he took all these sanctions into account. And as I said earlier in this program, there are already countries in, in the West that are trying to get out from under, find exemptions, whatever term you want to use. Uh, the biggest problem I think we have is we do not have an overall strategy for dealing with someone who does not want to play by the rules that we thought would now apply across the world in the 21st century. John Kerry's comment when uh, Putin seized Crimea that, oh my God, this isn't the 19th century. That just shows you how, how we are simply missing a sense of what other countries act like when they don't act like us. Not everybody wants to be like Mike, even if they wear his sneakers. Uh, Jim, um, you know, your, your sense on this and one other question, right? I mean, the president of the United States, when asked whether he th uh, thought that Vladimir Putin would stop uh, by taking Ukraine, said no, um, and that he expected uh, additional action. Does Putin move into Moldova? And as his game, you know, Michael Kaufman observed when we talked to him a couple of uh, days ago, uh, the great uh, Center for uh, Naval Analyses uh, analyst and among the, the best guys on this conflict, uh, predicting it way before a lot of other people did, you know, said like, look, Russian history is characterized by, you know, building empire, losing empire, and then rebuilding empire, right? It's almost a Sisyphean task uh, that, that they, they have. Um, you know, d does he go, does he go into Moldova? And actually, does he at some point move on the alliance itself, convinced that we will do nothing? Well, I think uh, going on into Moldova, it's that is such easy pickings right now in, in terms of what his forces and uh, the geographic location right there uh, by Ukraine. I'm sure it's very tempting to do that, and he has nothing to lose. Uh, we've we're already sanctioning him, uh, and so uh, what's what's more um, uh, angry bricks being thrown at him from the West? So he could very well do that. Um, in terms of going against the alliance, uh, I don't think he'll do that. I I think when we when we're talking about sanctions, and and I agree with you all have said about the economic and financial sanctions. Um, just a quick note on that: in 2014, as the administration was putting together the sanctions package, you heard them worried about these cutouts. You know, they they wanted to really be had smart sanctions, supposedly uh, trying to protect other equities. And that led to these sanctions in 2014 as not being strong enough. And and we are where we are today because they were not. I think this administration has learned from that as many, many of the same people who were there in 2014. But I I think they're going to try to make sure there's not the kind of closed doors that you all were talking about, or at least minimized. And I, um, and I, so I, let's see how, how these sanctions take hold. It probably depend on the sector and, and that type of thing. And it is a long-term kind of thing. And like Dove said, I mean, at the end of the day, sanctions, 
it's a spotty record for sanctions. But I think the other sanctions, and I call them sanctions, and they're not really sanctions, but these military moves that we've made probably caught the attention of Putin more than than, than these these other sanctions. I think he was probably surprised to see us move the units that we did into, into Europe. F-35s being introduced into Europe, uh, the, the Apaches, the um, 18th Airborne Corps, uh, boots on the ground in the Baltics, all of that kind of thing is, is not the normal U.S. play when we reinforce Europe. So I think that certainly caught his, caught his attention. And that is more of a deterrent value, I think, in terms of the allies uh, and Putin than, uh, than these sanctions, which, of course, now are just punishment sanctions, quite frankly. So um, anyway, I, I, um, I, I, I think we've got to continue down this military route and I agree with Dove in terms of defense spending. I agree with a lot of points, Vago, um, that you made about uh, we've got to make it hard uh, and go back to kind of what we did during the Soviet Union days where we, we wouldn't allow them to travel. There was a lot of things that we did that, uh, that might come across to the normal person as a small thing, but in fact was a big thing in terms of denying visas and, and this and that. I mean, we, we, can't, we can't just look at economic sanctions. It's gotta be sanctions that really hit them personally too. Uh, so, uh, so I think at the end of the day, and just to, just to complete this, we need to really show more bayonets going into Europe in various phases than, than what we've announced to date. I think we will see that, uh, but we got to get used to paying for that and out of the defense budget and, uh, and ending this stupid debate about is it China or is it Europe? It's both, and we're going to have to pay for it. Um, I uh, want to uh, quickly uh, point out, right, I mean, F F-35s uh, have been in Europe and have participated in, in policing, but we're moving them uh, forward uh, and, and that uh, matters. Uh, I also want to point out that uh, Dr. David Asher, your colleague, uh, Patrick, uh, at the Hudson Institute uh, think tank, is actually one of the world's you know, most thoughtful, I would put Juan Zarate and a couple of other people in that category as well. Uh, of engineering sanctions. And I have to say, you know, David is the one who really engineered the Banco Delta Asia super weapon. And, and my point is, if you do something like that, that is a nuclear weapon. And if you engineer it the right way, it, it, you cannot escape it. And indeed, it then takes extraordinary measures uh, to even free tens of millions of dollars that are caught up in it that you need to rescue, right, to, to unwind it. So I'm saying, this, this is the time now to start to do that and to be very, very bloody minded. You're effing with the wrong crowd and it doesn't matter how tough you think you are. You are the apex predator in your zoo. This is a wider ecosystem and we too can, can kill you uh, if we want to and drive you from power. And that must be our goal. Uh, in the case of Vladimir Putin, this whole thing of whoever comes up next will be equally as bad and not as bad. I've subscribed to the Stalin uh, dictum, no man, no problem. The Soviet Union was a very different place without Joseph Stalin leading it. You can't automatically say, well, you know, there'll be somebody worse than Stalin. Uh, you know, and sometimes you're like, you know, maybe there isn't anybody worse than Stalin, Mao or uh, Hitler. Uh, Michael, let me give you just a uh, last word. Do we end up getting a supplemental? How big is this supplemental, right? I mean, we are consuming money. We're not Vladimir Putin. We actually have to pay for this stuff. How much more money are we talking about in a supplemental before we part here in the next minute? Um, I don't think it's going to be anything too enormous. Uh, and I think it, it, I don't think there's going to be anything next week. I think if there is anything, 
it'll be tacked on uh, to the omnibus. And I think it'll be in terms of, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, and again, what that's going to be for is anybody's guess. I think right now it's more geared toward humanitarian assistance, but this, this is changing uh, by the minute. So I, I really, I mean, there's, there's different, different opinions on both the Democrats and Republicans and within the appropriators and leadership. Uh, I really can't begin to guess. I just know there's going to be something. Guys, thanks very much all for joining us. Really appreciate it. Hope everybody has a great weekend, a great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks very much. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.